Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to uh, start the talk tonight with uh, a passage from uh, a discourse that's from the Sutta Nipata. The Sutta Nipata is a collection of uh, probably the earliest uh, discourses of, uh, of the Buddha, <coughs> or probably the most authentic, I should say, of, uh, that seemed to, uh, uh, to come from him. Uh, I'll just read it. <coughs> One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior, for that very reason, disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person, the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. An accomplished person does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for he is not of that sort. Nor by holy works, not by holy works, nor by tradition is he led. He's not led into any of the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. <laughs> and there seem to be a lot of annoying people around, aren't there? <laughs> One who thinks oneself equal to or superior or inferior for that very reason, disputes. What I want to talk tonight is uh, about the comparing mind and the views that we have and create of ourselves in relationship to others or some way comparing ourselves with some ideal of who we think we should be in the uh, teachings of the Buddha, the, the phrase that describes the comparing mind is um, the fetter of conceit, or sometimes known as the conceit of I am. It's one of the last things to go in the model of enlightenment. Uh, in the classical teachings, there's four stages of enlightenment. And even after greed and aversion are completely uprooted, there is still this fetter, this knot of conceit, of comparing, of judging, the conceit of I am, until you are a fully enlightened being. It's there at the third stage of enlightenment. So if you've seen a little bit of comparing in your mind, you know, well, you're no higher than third stage anyway. Uh, 
And it comes up again and again in, uh, in the teachings. It's, it's really uh, a very crucial aspect of, it's the heart of the Buddhist teaching, how we get caught in this sense of self, of creating this sense of self, which then goes about comparing ourselves to all these other imagined selves out there. And I'll read a couple of lines from a couple of other discourses from the Majima. Uh, when a noble disciple has thus understood truly, he extirpates the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am, and by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, he here and now makes an end to suffering. And how is the bhikkhu a noble one whose burden is lowered, who is unfettered? Here a bhikkhu has abandoned the conceit I am, has cut it off at the root, so it is no longer subject to future arising. That is how the bhikkhu is a noble one whose burden is lowered, who is unfettered. There are, oh, maybe about 15 different uh, passages that in this... uh, Book of discourses that see that as the heart of uh, freedom. So it's really a crucial issue. <clears throat> Eye making and mind making, it's also referred to in there. <clears throat> so uh, when does it happen for you? Have you seen it arise from time to time? Here on the retreat, when does it show itself. A lot of times it happens when there's some kind of um, the more social situations here on the retreat, like mealtimes. You know. That's always a... Uh, uh, you're getting it in spades. You know. I can remember going to the uh, the the kitchen or to the dining room on retreats and just to see this judging mind and it would just be rampant, you know. Gosh, that person is so mindful. God, amazing how meticulous you know, they are. You know? Or just the very same uh, scene and a different attitude. Who do they think they are? Miss mindfulness over there, you know. Or somebody is is walking, a walking meditation is another time that that can happen a lot. You notice this. You know, somebody is just walking at a natural pace and there you are trying your best, lifting, moving, placing, you know. And you might think, you know, gosh, they're just themselves. Amazing. I wish I could just be natural and walk when I feel like walking, you know. Or two hours later, somebody can be walking by at a natural pace, kind of briskly walking, and the thought comes, don't they get it? Don't they get it? This is about really seeing the fine detail. I got it. I'm walking slowly. Happens all over the place. Or it can happen in your meditation, comparing yourself with everybody else. You know, maybe you take a peek and everybody looks like a Buddha. God, they are so still. When is mind gonna, my mind going to settle down? You know? 
And we, what we do is evaluate ourselves in comparison to everyone else. And practice in that spirit, you know, hoping that we're okay too. I, you, some of you might have heard me say this story where I, I would just be walking, lifting, moving, placing, really getting into it, and really you know, enjoying the slow walking. Nobody around, lifting, moving, placing. Somebody comes through, I'd start, after a while, I introduced another note. Lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, <laughs> lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. Because I was just honest with myself. That was a whole extra reason for walking that way. And then, of course, there's the, the comparison with your own practice. The last retreat. God, I was really focused on that one. My mind is everywhere now. This probably wasn't the right time for me to sit. Or even the last sitting, or yesterday. It was really happening. It's not happening anymore. <laughs> At one retreat, I put a, a sign up on my, it was a three-month course, and I, and I kept on getting confused by this, you know, wow, it's happening, and now it's not happening, and now it's happening. And, now it's, and I, I wrote this little note to myself, just as a reminder. If the thought, it's happening, comes watch out because it's going to change. And then there was another line. If the thought nothing's happening comes, watch out because you never know. But we compare and thinking, oh, that was then and this is how it is now and I'm going to be this way forever. How did I get stuck? My first year of, uh, of practice, well, no, it was, the, it was my first long uh, retreat and I got into... Um, uh, late night sitting. Right? I kind of got into that groove. Oh, how cool it is to sit at night late. And I know a number of people here are doing that. And, um, and I'd be sitting up and sitting up and then I'd kind of start feeling like it's time for me to go. But I'd peek and there'd be, you know, one or two people still there. So, uh, well, they're here. I'll be here. I can, I can do this. You know, half an hour later, they're still here. Okay. And I noticed that I was getting very good at competitive meditation. Uh, I went to, uh, went, to my, went to Joseph and I said, you know, I don't think that there's something a little bit off here. I'm, you know, my motive for sitting doesn't seem completely pure. Right? And he shared with me that he had the same exact thing in, uh, in his practice in Bodh Gaya. There was this Danish guy who would stay up all night, it would seem, and he, so he'd stay up all night. One night he found out that the guy just left his light on and, and he couldn't see. They were in different rooms and he was in the next room and the light was on, you know. But there he was, that light was on, so he stayed up. <clears throat> you just watch those thoughts and... Whatever gets you to practice, you know, see them, see the motive, and keep on practicing. And as a teacher, it also rears its, its head, you know, until you're fully enlightened, it's there. You know, if, if the mind is at all contracted or feeling, um, feeling disconnected, it's so easy to get into comparison, you know. Gosh, Guy is so clear. 
I wish I could be clear, you know. Gil, so Zen-like and scholarly, you know. <laughs> Gosh. Sally is impeccability itself, so organized, you know, and that's a, an issue with me. Gosh. <laughs> Sylvia weaves her happiness spell and everybody walks away, you know, floating on, on air and just inspired. And what a storyteller. You know. When I, I first started doing some, uh, some teaching in my earlier days at Yucca Valley, it was um, Joseph Goldstein would give a talk one night, just the embodiment of depth and wisdom and clarity and just make my heart sing and everybody's heart. Then Jack would go the next night, the, the master speaker weaving his spell, and then I'd go on the next night. Right? <laughs> And this is like, you know, my first year or two of, of giving Dharma talks. And I knew if I was in the audience, I was wishing for, for the next night to happen so that Joseph would come back, you know. But there I was. You know, it was very humbling. Um, so you get a lot of practice. Dharma talks, <laughs> Dharma talks are, are really, you know, a practice in itself. Last year we had a... a, a um, a conference in uh, a teachers' conference in England, and the uh, the we did a council where people went up and talked about their uh, challenges and roles. And once Dharma talks became a topic, one after another, talking about how much goes into the pre and post post mortem of a Dharma talk, you know, <laughs> and. The saying is, you're only as good as your last Dharma talk. Because then you get another one, and and if you didn't quite make it, you know, oh, you feel kind of cruddy for a couple of days. This is, uh, I want to uh, read this. It's a great piece by uh, Ajahn Sumedho. You know, Ajahn Sumedho, who's this fabulous teacher. who was a student of Ajahn Chah's, one of, the, one of the first, I think he was the first Western student. When I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, not uh, just having to raise my voice to say, I, I, sir, in public, in roll call, would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher. Well, teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years, that wasn't such a threat. (laughs) But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I would give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. (laughs) I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I would feel. Fortunately, in Thailand, the people are are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seemed quite grateful about it, so that made it quite easy. One time, at a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. 
Up till that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had, I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. <laughs> and I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor <laughs> and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies left sitting there. <laughs> Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff. Entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, this posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. What a teaching, huh? That comparing mind, it can be so painful, can it? And it can get activated by the smallest little things. Sometimes when I'm around builders, people who really know how to put things together with their hands, you know, God, I can feel small, you know, in a moment when I get caught in that thought. What is it for you? What, What triggers it? We can also get really into comparing Dharma scenes, you know, this is the right Dharma scene, this is the good one, you know. Like we said, well, we're in California here. We're a hip dharma, you know. Or, oh, those Californians, they're flaky dharma, you know. Or Vipassana, oh, I'm a Zen student. I'm talking about compassion for all beings and you're just uh, caring about your own enlightenment. Yes, well, that's that's good practice. Carry on. (laughs) Uh, And in, in Asia... Burmese and Thai you know, don't have the greatest respect for each other over, over the centuries. Or the Thai forest and the Thai city or the same in, in Burma. Or between Sri Lanka and the others. Or between Mahayana and, and the lesser vehicle, Hinayana. Or the supreme vehicle, where the supreme vehicle, where... at the top we get so attached this is one of the the great attachments one of the four great attachments that the Buddha talked about in the second noble truth attachment to spiritual form attachment to rites and rituals it's, it's translated as but getting attached to your particular form of the truth I want to read a, a beautiful passage from Ramakrishna who is a great Indian uh, saint, holy man uh, from the last century, who saw the union of all the different forms. This is his words. Mother, 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 everyone foolishly assumes that his clock alone tells correct time. 
Christians claim to possess exclusive truth, and even modern liberal thinkers reiterate the same claim to exclusivity. Countless varieties of Hindus insist that their sect, no matter how small and insignificant, expresses the ultimate position. Devout Muslims maintain the Quranic revelation supersedes all others. The entire world is being driven insane by this single phrase, my religion alone is true. Oh, Mother, you've shown me that no clock is entirely accurate. Only the transcendent sun of knowledge remains on time. Who can make a system from divine mystery? If any sincere practitioner within whatever culture or religion prays and meditates with great devotion and commitment to truth alone, your grace will flood their mind and heart, O Mother. The particular particular sacred tradition will be opened and illuminated, they will reach the one goal of spiritual evolution. Mother, 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 how I long to pray with sincere Christians in their churches and to bow and prostrate with devoted Muslims in their mosques. The conceit of I am, which gets into comparing on so many different levels, my way, I, mine, and it is really what is what can be called, I love this term that uh, Albert Einstein uses, an optical delusion of consciousness, where we think that we are somehow separate, but we don't see through that. We don't see it clearly. What we are, according to the Buddha, are five processes or five groups, five aggregates that comprise our form. Form, the body, and four with mind, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. That's who we are, but we cling to this process and take a sense of self in that process. And as soon as we grasp on to these components, we feel disconnected and separate, not seeing that we are this process of life just moving through us or expressing itself as us. One of those aggregates... Perception, particularly, creates a difficulty. And uh, Guy spoke about this, I think, the other night. Because perception is, uh, has to do with recognition and memory. And when there is recognition, it kind of files away and easily gets into comparing And that's where we adopt what is called wrong view. That's one of the the unwholesome mental factors, wrong view. That's the name of it. Wrong view, thinking that there is this separate self. And then we identify and take ownership, to identify with and take ownership of various aspects of ourselves. My body or my body, 
Look, my nose. Oh, look at my nose. You know, or my voice. Yes, I have a beautiful singing voice. You know, not realizing it's not yours. How can you say it's yours? It's just been something that's been given. You've been blessed with. But that's no more yours than your thoughts. And we do that too, don't we? My awful thought. Oh, if people could read my mind, they'd see what a rotten person I am. Have you seen that these days? That's taking ownership for these thoughts that just fly through. Or, hey, that was a pretty neat thought. I hope everybody sees what a really beautiful, holy person I am (laughs) for that thought. You've just taken ownership and bought it. This is mine. This is me. This creates problems. My good heart. My bad heart. You are simply a process of causes and conditions. Causes and conditions. And as soon as there's that sense of me and other, then we create problems for ourselves. Then it's so easy to get into that self-judgment that so many people report on retreats. I'd say about 95% conservatively, conservatively, that is a central issue that we need to come to terms with. Very conservatively. 99, I'd say. How does that happen? That somehow we feel we're not good enough That's what it's rooted in, thinking that we're not good enough. Guy mentioned uh, a couple of nights ago when the Dalai Lama came to IMS. I was there at that retreat in 1979. And it was so striking when this, this guy asked about unworthiness and after a while translating back and forth until the Dalai Lama finally got what he was talking about. As soon as he got it, he looked at him and was saying, you're wrong, you're absolutely wrong. You imagine the Dalai Lama telling you you're wrong after two and a half months of sitting, the Bodhisattva of compassion, but he said it with incredible compassion. You are wrong. What makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of life in the universe and somehow you're a mistake? You don't belong? He didn't quite say it like that, but that was the essence of what he was saying. This feeling of not being good enough, in a way, it's, it's insulting to the Dharma. I came across this quote, Believing your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring our own opinion to God's. It's true, isn't it? How can we think that we're not good enough? 
And to have that thought here as you come to practice for two weeks or a month or two months, maybe I'm not good enough. I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again. Maybe there's some people who haven't heard it of going to um, to see Punjaji. This is when uh, Sylvia and I went a number of years ago. And uh, he talked a lot about good karma and about... Um, about grace, actually, was the word that he talked about. That, and we all have a right to be free here and now, here and now. And that you should see your own um, birthright of freedom. And I, I kept on hearing about this, this grace business, and I said, how do I know that my karma is, is, not, is good enough to be completely free, because he talked about complete freedom, complete liberation, and I was on the model of, you know, purification of process. I said, I don't know, how do I know my karma's ripe enough to be free? You talk about grace, how do I know I have enough grace? And he says, grace, you come here very sincere from around the world, you come here very good teacher, very good teachings, very sincere heart. Grace, you're neck deep in grace and you don't know you have grace. <laughs> We're all neck deep in grace. How, how could we not be? Here we are practicing together in pretty good circumstances, unbelievable circumstances, with the great support of everybody around and the teachings to practice. And yet, these thoughts of unworthiness come. Not being good enough. When we truly see, then we see who we are. When we see through this conceit of I am, we see who we really are. And who are we? Well, there's the five aggregates, certainly, that we've talked about. But even seeing through that, we open up to another reality, another perspective. An awesome understanding that not only are we not good enough, not only are we good enough, are we not not good enough, but we're perfect. We're a perfect expression of life, just as it is. We are sacred and holy. That's who we really are underneath all of these packages. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho again. He says... What is divinity? We may consider ourselves as purely instinctual creatures because we have an animal body with the same instinctual nature as an animal. But also there is the divine. For reflection on divinity, we have beautiful selfless qualities that can manifest through the human form when there's no self. When you're not caught in ignorance, when all that process of self-view ceases, then the divinity is obvious. Then kindness, compassion, 
joy, serenity of mind, are not something we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms, what he calls the shining through of the divine. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that there is both a relative and an absolute level of reality. And when you see through the relative to the absolute and you see the Buddha in you, then it's obvious that you're divine. But it's also important to see the relative, the way that the Dharma or life manifests in that particular form as also being perfect. It's not like, oh, if I can just get past this form and then get to, you know, to the jewels, then I'm okay. No, it's also honoring that particular form that is you. One of my favorite uh, quotes from Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. And there is a kind of honoring the relative as well as the absolute. Well, you might say, well, that's Martha Graham. That sounds nice for a a dancer, a choreographer. So just uh, as a as a compliment to that, I want to read from Nyoshal Kempo, Natural Great Perfection. It's a beautiful book. And listen to the words and Martha Graham's words echoing in your mind. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. It is beyond increase or decrease. It is neither improved by remaining in nirvana nor degenerated by straying into samsara. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect, unobscured, quiescent, and unchanging. Its expressions are myriad. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and achieving stability in in that which implies authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being and training in that incisive recognition 
through simply sustaining its continuity without alteration or fabrication. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect. Its expressions are myriad. And the thing that I love to reflect on, it's one of my favorite reflections, is how creative, how amazing, Imaho, they say in Tibetan, Imaho, how amazing, how many different flavors of beauty there are in life. If we look at people, how many different ways there are to be beautiful. And not just on the outward exterior, certainly there's aesthetics, how many different ways that you know, people can be you know, stunningly beautiful. That's itself amazing, each one unique. But even more deeply, how many different ways that there are for all of us to express life in such a unique, beautiful way. And as we are more and more in touch with that inner beauty, we just allow it to shine out more, like Ajahn Sumedho says. How many different flavors of beauty and goodness. And there's a joy in seeing that. As you, when you see that, when I see that, the idea of comparing is completely irrelevant. You know, as, as the phrase goes, there's no comparison. And there is no comparison. There's no comparing. But it calls for us to keep on looking for what's beautiful, to see what's good and what's true. Hmm. Actually, just remembering another Sumedha quote that I love. He says, uh, People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things all around you. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us, and in them we find joy. So it's a matter of looking for them inside and outside, not just seeing what's wrong, but seeing what's, what's unique and extraordinary and exquisite. when we get into this stance of not being good enough, that itself is also considered the conceit of I am. Because it is a, a contraction and a disconnection, a sense of, of, of self is created. Trungpa Rinpoche had this great line, uh, I remember. He said, timidity is just another ego trip. And it is, isn't it? Oh, yes, I'm a shy person. You ever notice, you know, if, you, if you're feeling really shy and you walk into a room and you're, you know, incredibly nervous and shy about being, being seen, you know, people notice you, don't they? Oh, there's that person who's afraid of being seen. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
So it doesn't work that way. Okay. So how do we work with this comparing mind, with this judging mind? One thing to keep in mind, one essential approach and uh, strategy and cultivation is that of forgiveness. This is a very crucial aspect of practice. It's the antidote to the complaining mind that says, I'm not good enough. When you see how you'd like to be and you see how you are and you see that great gulf, you can either berate yourself and feel that maybe in 20 lifetimes from now you'll get it together or in a moment you can understand this is just causes and conditions. This is simply conditioning playing itself out. With that understanding, there's great compassion that arises. I've told this story of walking uh, in the, in the uh, gym at, at IMS. It was one of my first retreats and I was all by myself and just trying to see how slowly I could go and nobody was around and then somebody came in who was, had just come in from, another, uh, from the outside because in those days we had a, a two-week retreat tacked on to the end of a three-month course. Mm-hmm. And you can really feel somebody's energy, as probably a number of you uh, here experience. But I wasn't going to stop. I was doing this game to see how slowly I could go, right? And I had a feeling this would look kind of strange to this person. And after about two minutes, they bolted out of the, the gym in what I thought was frustration. And uh, the thought came as they started to bolt out wow, I really blew their mind. (laughs) They must think I am a great yogi. And from that thought, it opened up to this trap door of presentation and ego and wanting approval. And it it was really hard. And from that slow walking, I just... I was pacing back and forth. I was like a caged tiger thinking, oh my God, I've been doing this for two months, two and a half months, and it's just like it was. So much ego everywhere. And in a moment, I, I slowed down and I realized the millions and millions of times I'd had that kind of thought that I hadn't caught because I wasn't quiet enough to catch it. But it was so much... Know, a part of me that it would just be go it would go unnoticed in this lifetime and then if you think of more than one lifetime you know forget it it just boggles the mind and from this frustration there was this deep wave of compassion what did i think after two and a half months i'd unlearn all of that conditioning and it was it was a very Uh, important moment for me. It was one of the first times that I really felt genuine compassion 
because I wasn't taking ownership of those thoughts and just seeing they are habits, just patterns of thought going on and on. So forgiveness, by seeing the conditioning, by understanding the conditioning, which leads to genuine compassion. A second practice in relating to that comparing and judging in the mind, that sense of self that coalesces as the conceit of I am, is seeing how empty those thoughts are. They have no more validity than, as Joseph says, the sky is blue. Or than saying the sky is green. It's just a thought going through that came up on the screen that we are believing. I'm no good. Who says? It's just a thought. And that's the, the freeing aspect of this practice. When you see you're sitting here and the thoughts are coming and going and coming and going on their own as you're trying to pay attention to whatever it is, after a while, I hope you're getting that you have no control of what's coming through. If you had control, you'd only have loving thoughts and kind and peaceful thoughts, but probably a few, few others slip in from time to time. And it's tremendously freeing to see, oh, it's just a thought. Joseph has a very good instruction. He says, if you're really bothered by your thoughts, imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Because yeah. for all intents and purposes, they are. You know, maybe just pick up some radio waves. Just a thought playing itself that you've latched on to and said, yes, that's real. And it's incredibly freeing once you see, even for a little while, how empty those thoughts are. Come on up here, Sylvia. You can come on up, please. That uh, you don't have to believe them at all. At all. One of my main practices these days when I really get snagged, if I remember saying to myself, what thought am I believing right now? It's a very simple question, but it has the power to completely free the contraction of mind. What thought am I believing right now? It's empty. It's just a little mental formation that got created that you've taken to be real. So that's the primary uh, power of mindfulness. Naming, oh, thought, or oh, freaking out. That's what's going on. (laughs) There's a a power in uh, Nyanaponika's book, The Power of Mindfulness. I love this line where he he says, once you name something, it, it, it it doesn't have the same... Uh, power to grip you, just like in the old tales, the old fairy tales, when you name the demon or you name the dragon, as soon as its name is found, it loses its power over you, over the hero or the heroine. In the same way, naming, saying 
clearly, oh, thinking, oh, judging, and saying it with the kindest voice possible, oh, it's just judging in the mind. It loses its power over you. So forgiveness for the conditioning, seeing the emptiness of the thoughts, having a sense of humor is very, very helpful. Because what humor does is it it keeps you from taking it so personally. And instead of being, oh, look at my mind, it's, wow, look at the mind. Isn't it amazing? And in just a moment, if you can move from my mind to the mind, you've moved from the conceit of I am to exploring the nature of the human predicament and experience. Just that little change from my to the. Look at the mind. The Buddha Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. Meaning, this is the laboratory that you've been given to check out what it means to be in this form as a human and to understand in this laboratory some basic principles about reality. And that's it. So with that lightness and humor, you don't have to take it quite so personally. And you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. (laughs) It makes all the difference in the world. But it's slippery. You have to be really careful because it's just one thought away from identifying with things. I had this experience a couple of year, a few years ago when uh, I was given uh, the instruction to notice how any sense of self is being created. It was, it was very kind of essency and delicate, and I was really getting into this. Oh, yeah, it's, oh, no self there. Okay. <laughs> and then as I was doing this slow walking meditation, this, this guy comes in who was kind of like a, a real loud, clunky you know, yogi who, um, who would write all of his meditations in this big book. And, you know, just as he was walking, he'd be writing them, you know. <laughs> so um, he gave some people a chance to work with their, their stuff. And... Uh, <laughs> And there I was, you know, just walking, lifting, moving. no, no sense of self. Okay. And then, and then this guy would come in clunking along and really seeming out of it. And the thought came, well, I have certainly a whole lot less sense of self than he does. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, snagged again. So you got to be really attentive. Another aspect that I, I find helpful to get a sense of cutting through that conceit of I am, that coalescing, is um, even if you can't feel it, acting as if you were divine, acting as if you were the Buddha. You know, when we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in that capacity in all of us to awaken. And even if it seems that you're completely 
locked in and contracted and confused, as you start to even just wear that as a possibility, the mind starts to expand. What if I really am a Buddha inside? What would that be like? And somehow opening up the imagination to that allows more and more for you to, for reality to catch up with your, with your thoughts so you can feel it in here too. Taking refuge in your Buddha nature or taking refuge in the Buddha and what the teachings offer is another source of um, support for working with this. As the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. It's possible. So when you truly understand this, when you even just get a glimpse, a glimpse of who you really are, when the mind is quiet, and there's not that disconnection when they're simply resting in a natural ease of being. What is there to compare? Is my awareness better than your awareness? My awareness is really cool. You know. It's all just awareness. How could it be better or worse than my loving heart is better than yours. You know, so when I was growing up, there was this expression, my dad saves at the Bowery you know, in New York. Mine, mine. When it's obvious how incorrect that perception is, how can one manifestation of a loving heart be better than another? It's just love moving through us. It's just a play of consciousness through these various forms. This is Nisargadot from I Am That. He says... My guru told me that you are a child. That that child, which is you even now, is your real self. He said, go back to that state of pure being where the I am is still in its purity before it got contaminated with this I am or that I am. And now when he says I am, he's not talking about the conceit of disconnection of I am. He's talking about that pure Buddha nature. But the this I am or that I am, that's the conceit of I am. Your burden is of false self-identifications. Abandon them all, my guru told me. Trust me, I tell you, you are divine. Take it as the absolute truth. truth. Your joy is divine, your suffering is divine too. Remember it always. All comes from God. You are God. Your will alone is done. I believed him and soon realized how wonderfully true and accurate were his words. 
I am divine. So, when you get caught, it's just a moment away from remembering, oh, just a thought. It's okay. Let's get quiet. Let's rest in that natural place and feel who's really expressing itself through this form. What's really expressing itself through this form? I'll just close with and one of my favorite passages from Wang Po. Your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of the suchness. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. This is who you really are. So let's sit and feel it for a moment. Thank you for your attention. So there's about 35 minutes for walking and then the last sitting and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.